Dr. Carolyn O'Day has um, uh, fresh off a successful first intern recruitment day yesterday has the has the um, honor of introducing our grand round speaker. Hi everyone. So a big thanks again for everybody's efforts yesterday. We had great feedback from the applicants, from the faculty, uh, and from our residents. It is with great pleasure that I get to introduce Heather French. Uh, she is a neonatologist down at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Did her training. She was a Dartmouth undergrad, so she's home uh, for these two days. Uh, then went to the University of San Diego for medical school, followed by her residency and fellowship at CHOP as well. Um, she is the associate program director for the fellowship and really sort of guided me through not only uh, my research project as my mentor, life. I showed up uh, on my due date for a fellowship uh, the first day, and she really made sure I was ready to go when I came off my maternity leave that September. Um, and so I really owe a lot to Heather. She also has gotten her master's in medical education um, and has done a lot of work within the neonatology world at helping us develop a national curriculum. She is here today to talk to us about bridging the generation gap in medical education, and I hope you enjoy it. Thanks. So good morning, everyone. Um, couldn't have picked a nicer time to come up to Dartmouth. Um, as I was driving, I drove up from Manchester and just was getting very, very happy. It's like I was getting closer to campus with all the leaves and everything. Um, I have no financial disclosures or any conflicts of interest, but I do have one emotional disclosure. Um, I'm really thrilled to be here. Uh, it's such an honor to be giving grand rounds at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, and it's part of my alma mater. Um, and as uh, Carolyn said, I am a Dartmouth alum, and I was the class of 96, and I really do just love this town and this college like most alums you've probably come across. I'm also a little bit of a pack rat, so I was able to dig out my old student ID. And in honor of Carolyn, I found a picture and a ticket stub from a 1992 Dartmouth Penn football game. Um, and what made me feel really old was that the ticket was $4. <laughs> the other thing that was also quite sad, though, when I flipped the ticket over was there was an advertisement and a discount code for EBAs. It's really, really disappointed. So my objectives this morning are to um, really talk about medical education. And this is much more of a theoretical talk. There's not a lot of research. Um, but my goals today are to compare and contrast the different generations working in healthcare today, to outline the challenges facing educators, to create content that has broad appeal across the generations working in healthcare, to analyze features of successful educational strategies, and then to describe three educational modalities that bridge the generation gap. So what I want to do is start by getting you acquainted with the modern learner. So the modern learner is described as overwhelmed, distracted, and impatient. And I'm wondering if that describes anybody that you guys might know. Um, I would bet that these feelings are universal to clinicians at all levels, whether you are a trainee or you're nearing retirement. So I have just started my talk on generational bridging about uh, by describing a commonality amongst all of us. And this slide, which I borrowed from Deloitte, suggests that only 1% of a typical work week is spent on the training and development of employees. So in medicine, where medical knowledge is progressing at a rate that few of us can even comprehend, this amount of time is far from adequate, um, no matter what stage our career we are in. 
So speaking of career stages, I just want to discuss the elephant in the room. Um, and I figure it's just best to dive in and describe the generalizations that are used to define each generation, the positives and the negatives. And I apologize in advance if I manage to offend any of you, um, but I think using a generational lens is really the best way to find solutions to workplace and educational conflicts. So generations usually span about 15 years, and it's suggested that the development of a person occurs through exposure to attitudes and habits of the social groups which they belong. So these exposures include common life experiences and events, pop culture, parenting behaviors, politics, um, the environmental, con uh, sorry, the economic climate, science, and technology. And these shared life experiences create similar values. So for me, Grunge Rock, Princess Buttercup, and John Hughes movies really shaped my upbringing, my humor, my love of flannel. Like so many things about me are really just a product of when I grew up. So there are six defined generations living now. So the greatest generation were born and raised um, in an era marked by war and the Great Depression, which led to values of personal responsibility, duty, honor, and faith. The silent generation is largely described as a generation that focused on their careers rather than on activism, and the people in it were largely encouraged to conform to social norms. So these two generations are largely out of the workforce in medicine, and so despite their many, many accomplishments, I'm not going to discuss them any further. But there are four generations working in the clinical in RENA. So the baby boomers, Generation X, Millennials or Gen Y, and a very few members of Generation Z. But Generation Z's most senior members are about 20 years old, and so while their influence will shape medical education in the future, for now I'm also going to leave this generation out of the discussion. So baby boomers. Um, these uh, are people that were born in the years after World War II, when there was, um, thanks to soldiers returning home, a significant spike in birth, births. And as described by the British Telegraph, these are the men and women who tuned in, got high, dropped out, dodged the draft, swung in the 60s, and became hippies in the 70s. And then some, like Bill Clinton, um, became, you know, made it to the White House. Um, they are idealistic and uncynical, and it was this generation that fought the Cold War and smashed down the Berlin Wall. And this generation grew up watching the birth of rock and roll, Elvis, Beatles, Woodstock, miniskirts, and women's lib. And the boomers are the first two-income household generation, the first TV generation, the first divorce generation, and the first tolerant generation. So as a whole, the boomers are characterized as valuing youth, health, personal success, and material wealth. And this generation expects that hard work is rewarded and respect is earned through the development of expertise and accomplishments. One's job and profession is a major part of your personal identity. And this generation is the first that really embodies the live to work um, ideal. So Generation X, um, which is my generation, are the latchkey kids who grew up street smart but isolated often with divorced or career-driven parents. And most remember being in school without computers and then with computers. Gen Xers are often called the MTV generation, and they have experienced um, the emergence of music videos, new wave music, 
electronic, glam rock, <laughs> heavy metal, punk, grunge, and hip hop. Um, this is the Nirvana, U2, Madonna, Friends, Beverly Hills 90210, and the PC generation. So Gen Xers value diversity, work-life balance, and their free time. This generation also has a much more casual, interpersonal style, and is much less likely to seek mentorship from elders. Um, as they really have this mentality of being self-reliant and wanting to do things on their own. For them, respect is earned based on work quality, not solely on their hard work. And this is the first work-to-live generation. So the millennials, I think you guys are in the back row. Um, where to begin with you? So you are considered a sophisticated, technology-wise, seen-it-all, and been exposed to it all generation. Um, you've been also called the Peter Pan generation because of the perceived tendency to delay some steps into adulthood, like buying a home or getting married and having kids. Um, millennials also have come of an age at, during a time of technologic change, globalization, and the most recent economic recession. They're the first generation that's always had a computer, and their affinity for technology shapes how they work and live. And this is also the generation that is dedicated to wellness, and they devote considerable time and money to it. The millennials um, overall are considered a very hopeful and idealistic generation that value tolerance, cooperation, and connection. This generation um, is characterized by a commitment to advocacy, activism, and social responsibility. And because of the huge degree of connectivity this generation has with their peers through social media and texting and other platforms, working in teams with peers and mentors is the norm. And this generation really expects feedback. Um, this generation also, they don't live to work or work to live. They, um, instead, they live and work with friends while having a lot of fun. Um, and, you know, when I was reading all about the millennials, this actually sounds like an amazing generation, and I'm pretty excited that, you know, the future of medicine is resting on your shoulders. And you millennials really are the future, and you will shape the next phase of healthcare in America. Because in the last two years, millennials have become the largest generation in the U.S. workforce. So what really is the challenge? You know, why do our generational um, differences create tension? So first and foremost, self-reliant generations like the boomers and the Gen Xers are now expected to work in teams, which requires respect and trust. The elder generations believe that respect and trust have to be earned, whereas the newer generations feel like they should just be granted respect and trust because of their affiliation. Uh, generational values come into conflict in the hospital. You know, ideas about respect for authority, leadership styles, work ethic, work-life balance, use and facility with technology, professionalism and communication are, you know, the definitions of all of those are very different if you were to ask trainees, junior faculty, mid-level faculty, and senior faculty. Uh, additionally, millennials exhibit very different attitudes towards education and work, which are challenging many conventional strategies and approaches in medical education. So for anyone younger than 30 in the audience, I wonder if you are familiar with any of these items from my 70s and 80s childhood. So this is an Atari. It's the old, the first generation of the, it's the Xbox or what's going on these days. Um, a Walkman, a floppy disk drive, Polaroid camera, 
um, a record player. And then the, you know, my most prized possession when I was seven years old was the 45 of Rio's, uh, Duran Duran's Rio that I bought, my very first record. That was $4.02. Um, but none of this stuff is really in use anymore, um, except if it's being used ironically by a lot of hipsters. Um, <laughs> and really, why is it not in use? Because it's old and it's outdated and there's better technology. You know, we just have to move on when things have gotten old. Um, and here is one more thing that is old. Traditional didactic teaching. You gotta love that Ben Stein. If you can't, I don't think the volume's up, but that's all right. You got it, right? So it is really amazing. I mean, how many of you have ever sat through a lecture like this, right? I'm assuming anyone? Anyone, right? Yeah. Ugh. And really, did you learn anything, right? No, because you're like drooling and thinking about dinner. So based on a show of hands, who believes that Messi is the better player? <laughs> well, you know, if you chose Messi, you are clearly correct, in my opinion. Um, do any of you have a strong opinion about who's the better player, Michael Jordan or LeBron? Jordan. Jordan. Coke versus Pepsi? Uh, wow. <laughs> you are unified. <laughs> PC versus Mac? Dogs versus cats? Ooh, this is a really tricky one. And uh, for you, I had to throw a bone to you millennials back there. Are you a member of the Swifty Squad or Team Kimye? <laughs> so, I mean, joking aside, the previous slides were really on a matter of pure opinion. You know, there's no amount of data that's going to sway your vote on Coke versus Pepsi, apparently. Um, but with medical education, we increasingly have data and research that are beginning to inform us beyond our opinions on what is the right way to educate. Um, but this is hard because so many educators have very strong opinions about the effectiveness and acceptability of different educational strategies. You know, slowly but surely, there is growing evidence-based research to help educators design learning activities. But despite this, we have continued to allow educational techniques that don't align with adult learn learning theory to persist. I do want to quickly point out that indeed messy and dogs are the best. But generational expectations about teaching and learning are very, very different. And many educational modalities that are being used by the boomers and the Gen Xers who are traditionally the teachers are just old and outdated. Um, times are changing and we really should never expect the learner to devolve to less effective educational techniques. We as educators really need to evolve. And an additional challenge that we face is that we have more knowledge to learn and a lot less time to train. So the medical, the, the doubling time of medical knowledge is decreasing at a, an incredibly rapid pace. Um, in the 1950s, the medical knowledge doubling time was 50 years. And in 2020, the medical knowledge doubling time is anticipated to be 0.2 years or 73 days. Um, this means that students who started medical school this fall are going to experience approximately 8 to 10 
doubling uh, knowledge doublings um, by the time they complete their minimum seven years of education and training. Um, and so what they learn in medical school is going to be just 6% of what's known by 2020. So knowledge is expanding faster than our ability to assimilate and apply it effectively. And simply adding more material or adding time to the curriculum is not an effective educational strategy. Fundamental change is imperative at all levels of educational, at the educational and professional spectrum. And in many ways, when it comes to teaching an environment where it's impossible to keep pace with medical advancements, we really are in a situation of the blind leading the blind a little bit. So medical um, education in the era before the 80-hour work week and duty hour reportings really did have the luxury of time. I mean, I can't say whether or not I learned that much going to a post-call lecture on, like, I don't know, PID or something. But I do remember not needing to rush through rounds um, despite my fatigue. And formal medical education activities during that period certainly wasn't efficient, but there was just more time to work with. Physicians weren't as concerned also um, many, you know, two decades ago about fl patient flow and RVUs and seeing a new patient every five minutes and rushing off to a million meetings one year on inpatient service. Healthcare today really feels like it's moving at light speed. It's team-based and efficiency is absolutely necessary. And medical education needs to keep pace with the changing face of healthcare delivery. And it, so it's more important than ever to align adult learning theory with educational practices to encourage clinicians at all levels of practice to be self-motivated, self-directed, and committed to the principles of lifelong learning. So perhaps it would be helpful um, to provide a bit of background about the recent evolution of medical education. So this is the educational triangle as described by Stanford's Faculty Development Center in 1986. Um, they thought they were being very innovative by allowing back and forth interaction between the teacher and the student. Um, and this two-way interaction had teachers thinking that they had a relationship developing between student and teacher and that teachers were learn leaving learners a little bit better than how they arrived. And then educators were finally also starting to think about how learners interacted with the content as a key variable in the learning process. This evolved a little bit further. Um, and we really now started thinking about the environmental context in which teachers and learners live. So this addition to the educational triangle is very important um, as teachers and learners alike are influenced by what's going on around us. Um, the triangle with external Ex, uh, ex, external influences describes the current state of medical education. So really, there has not been much evolution uh, since the 1980s, despite an immense change in the way healthcare is delivered. So if we were to substitute the variables of teacher, learner, and content with physician, patient, and disease, you get a new little picture. So which one of these interactions do you guys think gets the most attention in, in uh, medical education? Disease. Yeah, I think it's the physician's interaction with disease is what we teach in medical education. In healthcare, however, which arrow is most important to healthcare delivery in the U.S.? Everything else, right? But that's not how we're teaching. Um, our medical curriculum um, 
is about the interaction of the physician with the disease. But our healthcare challenges are really elsewhere. Um, if you were to think of a couple questions, um, does the environment impact healthcare delivery? Does the environment impact the way physicians deliver care or interact with patients or how disease can manifest itself? Um, does the healthcare environment impact the physician's knowledge of disease? For example, um, have any of you ever heard or have you said, I can't look this information up right now because I've got to finish up this discharge, admission, consult, et cetera, because I'm going to disrupt patient flow. Right? Just this, the, the stressors in our, our, in our environment prevent us from actually learning. In healthcare, the healthcare, uh, in reality, the healthcare landscape is much more complicated than physician, disease, and patient. A physician no longer works in isolation, but instead works with a team. And patients and their families aren't just focused on disease, but also on wellness. And all of these arrows are in need of a tremendous amount of attention, and any one of these arrows could be someone's life work. Um, we really need to be more thoughtful about how we create and support medical education activities and expand our definition of what worthwhile teaching activities are. Um, there are some educational building blocks we're never going to move away from. You have to have a basic understanding of anatomy and physiology and pathophysiology. But the way we acquire knowledge about disease and wellness, learn to apply principles of acquired knowledge, reinforce learning within a team context, and communicate about a patient's health uh, within the context of a given environment while considering a patient's values needs to be addressed because that's how we practice medicine. Clinical trends, hopefully, are going to be pushing medical education change. Again, the problem is that for, most, for the most part, medical education is still focused um, in this area. Traditional med ed is focused on the individual patient that needs episodic care by a physician that highly values experience and anecdotal support in making decisions for patients within a monitored inpatient setting. But we have to move away from this because it doesn't, again, address those complexities of the healthcare landscape. It's really no longer okay to judge a physician's competence on his or her ability to take a multiple choice test. And what we need, really need to be saying in healthcare now is judge my ability as a physician, as a member of this healthcare team, to a parent's compliance with an asthma action plan. Those are the outcomes that we need to move towards. So how do we move the needle? Um, generational learning styles, lack of evidence to support best practices, the complexities of the healthcare landscape, and the exponentially expanding medical knowledge have created a great, great challenge for educators. But there are several existing educational strategies that we need to become more facile with and use more effect effectively. Um, these strategies incorporate many elements from the educational triangle. So for example, simulation and educational technology, I assume most of you are participate in, potentially even facilitate, allows educators to train healthcare teams regarding disease and wellness within their working environment. Communication training helps healthcare providers better elicit patient and family values while understanding how to treat and manage disease and wellness within an environmental context. And flipped classrooms align adult learning theory with content acquisition and application within a clinical context. 
So it's these three educational modalities that I'd like to focus on now and show how these techniques can bridge different learning expectations and learning styles of the different generations working in healthcare. So again, I'm sure many of you are familiar with the use of simulation as an educational modality. Its use is widespread um, across both community and academic medical centers. David Gaba is an anesthesiologist from Stanford, and he's truly considered the grandfather of medical simulation in the U.S. Um, he was instrumental in bringing simulation to, uh, from the aviation industry to healthcare. And he said, simulation has the potential to revolutionize healthcare and address patient safety issues if appropriately utilized and integrated into the educational and organizational improvement process. I would argue that the phrase appropriately utilized and integrated is key. When you don't have proper planning or careful thought to educational or safety objectives, simulation can lose its power. Um, and when used correctly, simulation has incredible power. It can be used to teach and reinforce clinical knowledge, tech technical skills like intubations or IV placement, and then non-technical skills like leadership, situational awareness, communication, and teamwork. The challenge with simulation, like other modalities um, within medical education, is that there's limited research on in the impact on patient outcome. There are many features associated with effective medical simulation, but for the sake of time, I won't cover all of these features. But I do want to point out a very few important ones that benefit all clinicians, um, and these are feedback, deliberate practice, and mastery learning. So this is really my Achilles heel, the old Halstedian mantra, see one, do one, teach one. Um, it is the traditional paradigm for teaching procedural skills in medicine. And in this paradigm, procedural skill training is accomplished through direct patient care, with trainees practicing procedures on patients as part of a medical apprenticeship model. And I hope we can all agree that this method of training is outdated because of patient safety concerns. Simulation can and should be used to put an end to this type of teaching. I mean, could you imagine if um, airline pilots or nuclear power plant operators employed this adage for training? You know, I mean, I think it's just amazing that the medical profession has gotten away with it for so long. I worked with a group of pediatric educators uh, to publish an evidence-based framework for procedural, uh, procedural skill training. Um, this evidence-based framework is a six-step framework for uh, procedural skill training, but truly the framework can be used for lots of cognitive tasks. Um, the steps are le learn, see, practice, prove, do, and maintain. And in this framework, procedural skill training begins with the learner acquiring cognitive knowledge through didactic education and observation. The learner then progresses to the stage of psychomotor acquisition and is allowed to deliberately practice the procedure on a simulator. Simulation-based mastery learning um, is employed to allow the learner to prove competency prior to performing the procedure on a patient using a simulator. And once competency is demonstrated on a simulator, the learner can perform the procedure on patients with direct supervision until he or she can be entrusted to perform the procedure independently. And then lastly, maintenance of the skill is ensured through continued uh, clinical practice supplemented by simulation-based training as needed. 
This figure depicts the theoretical interplay of simulation and clinical experience in procedural skill development and maintenance. The dashed line represents skill development and maintenance over time. And the asterisk within the kind of gray box in the middle um, indicates a clinical hiatus or a break in clinical practice or a lack of exposure to a specific skill. So it truly doesn't matter what stage of our careers we are in, simulation is really beneficial for all of us. And I think physicians and clinicians as a group have to accept the fact that clinical experience does not in any way equal expertise. Um, in healthcare, the majority of simulation activities are geared towards medical students, residents, and fellows. But when you exclude attending physicians from simulation activities, that represents a missed opportunity for effective and efficient uh, refresher training and deliberate practice. Andrews Erickson um, is a psychology professor in Florida, and he's credited with coining the term deliberate practice and describing the process of how one becomes an expert. Erickson points out that outstanding performance is the product of years of deliberate practice and coaching, not of any innate talent or skill. And really, the figure illustrates um, the qualitative difference between improvement of experts and those engaging in a domain recreationally. Uh, the goal is for a clinician to quick, quickly reach a satisfactory level that is stable and autonomous, at which point positive feedback becomes much more common than constructive feedback. In contrast, expert performers counteract automaticity by developing increasingly complex mental models to attain higher levels of control over their performance. So they remain in the cognitive and associative phases a little bit longer. Certainly, some experts will at some point in their career stop engaging in deliberate practice and, per and prematurely automate their performance. And this is really why the provision of feedback, which the millennials crave and have grown up on, is important actually for all of us, no matter where we are in our careers. I don't know, how many attending physicians get feedback on a regular basis? Very few of you, right? Like, how do we know what we're doing is correct? And we may just be perpetuating bad habits we learned from our mentors. So we really do need feedback to improve. Um, I mentioned that the evidence for simulation training for patient outcomes is still not prolific, but there is growing literature that provides more and more evidence for its use. This study was published in 2014, and it was looking at airway management, and it shows that many outcomes favor simulation training, most notably for me, knowledge and patient effect. The challenge is that simulation training is time-intensive, um, and so medical educators need to figure out how to efficiently incorporate more simulation training into our regular work days, because even as much as five minutes of a refresher training can have a significant impact on our knowledge, skill retention, and our patients. This is a meta-analysis that was published in 2011 in JAMA, and again, it's pretty small, but um, just really wanted you to note here that um, the majority of uh, concepts that they were looking in this meta-analysis did favor um, simulation. They um, looked at 609 eligible studies and had over 35,000 trainees enrolled in these studies. And the authors concluded that compared with traditional didactic education, technology-enhanced simulation training was consistently associated with large effects for the outcomes of knowledge, skills, 
behavior and with moderate effects for patient-related outcomes. Um, and again, the patient-related outcomes are what is shown here in this figure. So I want to throw a little adult learning theory into the mix. Um, Sociocultural learning theory was developed by Leo Vygotsky, who's a Russian psychologist in the early 1900s. And his theory emphasizes that learning is a social phenomenon and is dependent on the interaction between an individual and uh, his or her social environment. Simulation training is really a sociocultural learning activity because it replaces sequestered classroom learning with flexible practice communities that embed the complexity of modern healthcare within the training environment. Vygotsky's um, concept of this zone of proximal development describes the area between a learner's current level of independent performance or what one can do alone and the learner's level of assisted performance, meaning what one can do with support. So a learner's skills and understanding can emerge if he or she engages in interactions with more skilled people, or, such as attending physicians. Um, and we engage with scaffolding in this zone of proximal development. And again, this is one of the reasons why simulation activities with various levels of providers can be so effective. It really, SIM is really a great educational uh, strategy that educators can use to scaffold a learner to the next level of understanding and performance. So for instance, more novice, more novice trainees begin simulation activities on the periphery of the sim. Um, and it's legitimate participation, but the cognitive load on these participants is not as high. So they have more bandwidth to really learn and observe from the people around them. And then as a participant gains more experience, they can enter into the zone of proximal development where their skills and cognition are challenged to a greater degree. And their community of practice, meaning the other team members, um, and the environment are providing that scaffolding necessary for psychologically safe learning in a contextual environment. So as your skills and knowledge improve, you move towards the center of the sphere where you can take on a leadership role. And again, the leadership role doesn't imply that you are able to function as the dedicated team leader. Instead, it implies that, you're, implies that you're able to function appropriately and effectively despite the high cognitive load for the task at hand. I also want to point out that simulation is being used for faculty development in a variety of ways. But it really isn't widespread enough. Um, the rapidly changing knowledge, knowledge base and advancing technologies demand that faculty give high priority to their own professional development to maintain knowledge, skills, and attitudes. But we have a lot of competing demands for teaching, scholarly productivity, and clinical service time, which can lead to the temptation to sort of opt out of more meaningful professional development opportunities. So I think simulation uh, exercises are ideal for faculty development as they require, in the, in the grand scheme of things, minimal time, but can yield really high benefits in individual and ultimately team performance. And this is really my last plug for simulation. Our continuing medical education and recertification requirements are very outdated. Um, currently, physicians are required to complete a variable number of hours of continuing medical education activities depending on the state and your specialty. And every 10 years, we take a multiple choice test to recertify in our field. And then maintenance of certification requires physicians to complete a bundle of, of education and quality improvement every five years, despite 
no evidence that they lead to improved clinical practice. But really what is not required for practicing physicians to me is actually what's startling. Despite the fact that we care for incredibly sick and fragile patients in pediatrics, there's no requirement to demonstrate clinical competency or to undergo direct observation of practice. There's no equivalent of check rides for, or proficiency training like they would require in the aviation industry. And yet we continue to be horrified by the number of errors that occur in medicine, but we haven't changed the way we ensure professional competency. You know, scientific discovery continues to push medicine and healthcare systems forward at a rapid speed, and our professional development system needs to keep pace, evolving with our healthcare structure. The airline industry experiences approximately 250 fatalities worldwide annually due to error. Um, and this is in comparison to healthcare's error-related 200,000 fatalities just in the U.S. alone. So I really wonder which industry has more rigorous professional development, ours or aviation. But again, I think simulation can really help us fit the bill here. So I'm going to switch gears um, and focus on communication training in healthcare. So how many of you have had formal communication training? So like half, maybe third to half. You know, there is a lot of research that has shown that no matter how knowledgeable of a clinician you might be, if you can't open communication and, and quality communication with the patient and the healthcare team, your skills are worthless um, in that team setting. Almost 15 years ago, the Institute of Medicine report on health professions and training identified that doctors and other healthcare providers lack adequate training in core healthcare communication skills, such as open-ended inquiry and reflective listening. These skills are essential to responding to the unique needs of our patients, their values, and their preferences as individual patients and their families. Historically, communication training for clinicians has received far less attention throughout training than other clinical tasks, besides, despite increasing evidence that a structured approach to communication improves our healthcare delivery. Um, communication has been shown to improve diagnostic accuracy, adherence to healthcare recommendations, patient satisfaction, patient safety, team satisfaction, and malpractice risk. And of particular importance to me as a neonatologist was a report that was released in July 2004 when I was in my fellowship. And the Joint Commission released a sentinel event alert estimating that 70% of perinatal death and injury could be attributed to communication um, breakdowns and deficient leadership. And I found this horrifying um, because communication is something that we as clinicians have complete control over. We can't control the clinical situation or the clinical diagnoses, but we can certainly control our response to them and how we communicate about them. Because of the rising complexity of healthcare delivery, the importance of good patient-clinician communication is growing exponentially. Um, effective communication is when the message being conveyed um, is understood as intended. Um, and this, these quotes are from a book called Eats, Shoots, and Leaves. It's a kid's book. I don't know if anyone has that. I, I particularly love that one. 
Um, you know, effective communication can help ensure positive outcomes for both the patient and the health professional. Unfortunately, current teaching approaches do not always facilitate the development of even a basic level of healthcare communication skills, both verbal and written. And again, why? Because medical knowledge is advancing at such a quick rate, we think we've got to teach that, and we're not teaching the basic building blocks. Early introduction of communication skills programs should continue throughout training because they're effective in improving confidence and reducing the number of errors made when communicating with patients, colleagues, and families. And research suggests that communication training is most effective when it's longitudinal. One session, one and done, is never going to cut it anymore. Um, many studies have shown that you can't just read about communication skills or see it in a video or discuss what you could say in a given situation. Communication training with opportunities to actually practice, challenging conversations is going to be much more effective. So simulations, standardized patients, and role play are research-proven instructional methods for developing communication skills. And these skills include language that is correct, complete, concrete, clear, concise, considerate, and courteous. Standardized patient training is quite effective for trainees when it's followed by constructive feedback. The quality of feedback is crucial and really needs to be specific, non-judgmental, and descriptive. Uh, communication training shouldn't be thought of as um, needed for trainees only. I'm sure every single one of us in this room has had um, an encounter with a colleague or a patient or a family that left us really scratching our head wondering if we got our point across. I'm, I'm sure that happens daily, actually. So I was fortunate uh, to spend five days last spring in training to become a Vital Talk instructor. Um, Vital Talk is, uh, came out of the adult oncology world, and it's a research-proven methodology for learning communication skills that's based on NIH-funded research. And I really thought that I was a decent communicator prior to the course, which is why I wanted to become an instructor. And I was amazed to find um, that the verbal tools that I learned in this course have really improved my ability to communicate with families, with my peers, with fellows in my program, and really even my spouse. I mean, the tools you can learn are phenomenal. And Vital Talk is just one of many resources available for communication training. You know, all of these organizations uh, offer communication training courses for healthcare providers. Um, and there really will be more bang for your buck if your more senior staff participate in, in these courses because they're the ones modeling the behavior and can disseminate it across an institution. Um, and I would argue again that experience does not equal expertise in communication. Um, without proper feedback and deliberate practice, none of us will become more effective communicators. And because so many aspects of medicine are taught through an apprenticeship model, we don't want ineffective methods of communication to be perpetuated by learners who are just imitating our bad habits. So the last educational modality I'm going to discuss this morning is flipped classrooms. How many of you know what a flipped classroom is? Some of you. Has anyone participated in them? Just a few. Okay. So, you know, medical educators struggle, really struggle, to design courses and seminars that support the development of deep and active learning strategies in their students. 
And we really need to move students away from superficial learning approaches that are often characterized by memorization of content for the purpose of doing well on board exams. We really have to develop learning strategies to help students understand underlying principles and concepts by engaging meaningfully with them. Um, and what medical educators are looking for was stated eloquently by Drs. Probst and Heath in 2012. And they proposed that the vision that we should try to chase and bring to reality is the development of education that wrings more value out of the unyielding asset of time. So higher level education for the most part relies on traditional didactic approaches whereby educators transmit knowledge as experts to their students. And the obvious limitation of this pedagogical approach is that students are not actively engaged in the learning process. Um, this educational approach treats students as sponges who passively absorb information and their interests and their learning styles are disregarded. So educators need to encourage students to problem solve, reason, and apply theory into practice. So our students are adult learners and therefore require an andragogical or adult learner approach. And the core principles of andragogy blend self-direction, self-motivation, and active learning to allow students to problem solve, reason, and apply theory into practice. The, the move to provide student-centric learning has promote, uh, prom promoted the recent surge in flipped classroom curricula in higher education. The flipped classroom is a relatively new educational approach that's intended to support active learning. The goal of a flipped classroom is to move from a passive, teacher-centered approach to favor a more active, student-centered learning environment. So there's no single model for the flipped classroom. The term is used to describe almost any class structure that expects a learner to educate oneself before coming to class using assigned material, whether it's readings, videos, podcasts, or screencasts. And then this pre-assignment, you, you complete the pre-assignment and you come to class. And in class, you have an active, uh, there's active in-class activities and exercises which promote deeper learning and application of knowledge, which moves learners, um, which moves those learned concepts from abstract ideas to concrete principles. So you repurpose class time from a passive lecture into a workshop where learners can ask questions about lecture content, apply learned concepts to real world act examples, and interact with one another in a hands-on activity. And you really do create a learning community in that way. So the higher order critical thinking necessary for application during in-class activities provides adult learners with the context for why we need to learn this information. So when you reverse the typical classroom lecture and homework elements of a class, knowledge acquisition occurs when it's convenient for the learner. They do it in the morning or at night or at their lunch break, whenever it actually works best for them to focus and concentrate. And then knowledge application occurs in a very supportive, collaborative environment that's facilitated by peers and the instructor. So the flipped classroom model signifies a role change for instructors who will need to give up their front of class position for, in favor of a more collaborative approach to facilitate learning. Learners will be required also to, learn, to move from a passive lecture participant to a more active member of a dynamic learning community, working towards the mastery of material and how actually to apply it in a clinical setting. 
This will also require learners to accept their responsibility for learning outside of the class, moving towards self-regulation and really embracing the principles of becoming a lifelong learner. The active discussions facilitated by an instructor during class time really focuses learning towards the higher levels of cognition, which are application, analysis, evaluation, and creation, described by Bloom in his taxonomy pyramid. It's been shown that these types of higher level cognitive skills are fundamentally important in career preparation and the ultimate success of students in the health professions. So flipped classrooms are actually used quite often in undergraduate education. And there have been many studies that have reported learning gains of almost two standard deviations in students taught with interactive flipped classroom. Um, this is actually a really interesting study published in 2011 from Science, and it was actually looking at a physics class. And they took a physics course, they split it down the middle, and the first section was taught by a Nobel Prize winning physicist in a traditional didactic lecture style. And the second section was taught by teaching assistants who had the students engage with the content and kind of do problem sets that an actual practicing physicist might encounter in their day-to-day -day, um, life. And uh, what the results showed was that the students in the second section were more engaged as assessed by class ratings, were more likely to attend class, and their scores on a course test averaged 74% compared to 41% among students in the first section. So compared to undergraduate education, flipped classroom use in medical education is still in its infancy. There was a recent systematic review um, just in March of 2017 looking at the effectiveness of flipped classrooms in MedEd, published by a group from UNC. And the authors concluded that flipped classrooms is a promising teaching approach, particularly in relation to increasing learners' motivation, the task value, and engagement. And they also reported that the approach is as effective as traditional education with regards to knowledge and skill set gained based on multiple choice tests and is also preferred by the learner. So this morning I have described three different educational modalities that I think can help bridge generational divides. There are certainly many more that could be used as well. You know, we work closely together and we really should be learning together. Um, educational need is universal, no matter what your years of experience or titles are. Um, the modern learner and the modern doctor are here to stay, and we must evolve our educational strategies to better align with adult learning theory and meet the needs of a new generation of physicians. We're going to be better equipped as educators and clinicians if we are willing to assimilate technology, give honest feedback, and be willing to receive it in return be a coach instead of a teacher, and create active learning opportunities for our trainees and our peers. Uh, Daryl Kirsch as the former CEO of the president and CEO of the AAMC. And in 2007, he said, the reality is increasingly the world around us is focused more, or focused less on the achievements of individual experts and more on collaboration between individuals and groups to solve complex problems. Our culture code needs to be collaborative, transparent, outcomes-focused, mutually accountable, team-based, service-oriented, and patient-centered. So we old dogs have to um, learn some new tricks, and we have to embrace new educational designs to meet the learning needs of the multiple generations working and learning together in our healthcare system. 
So again, I apologize to any Cat or Ronaldo fans that I might have offended this morning. Um, thank you so much for your time and attention. Again, it's such a thrill to be here, and I'm certainly happy to take any questions. And I'm totally safe because the students are off today. <laughs> or um, some of the fourth year courses or some of the sessions and some of the second year where they do small groups. The students do not evaluate those sessions more highly. They say they prefer the lectures because it's really relaxing. <laughs> so what do we do? <laughs> and then you get your course evaluated based on its likability a lot of the time, not its effectiveness. Well, and I think that's the problem, right? I mean, what we care about is making more effective doctors, not, you know, making sure they're enjoying their, their leisure. Um, <laughs> I mean, and there has to be a balance, right? I mean, you have to, I mean, you're not going to want to come to class if you're, you know, you're feeling challenged. So really, I think the trick with creating a, an active learning environment is to ensure that there is a feeling of psychological safety um, where it's not being, I mean, oftentimes every class has a couple very dominant voices, and you have to figure out how to, you know, kind of quiet the dominant voices, even though we need them because they get the conversation going, but really figuring out how to engage those quieter learners. Because I think once a learner is engaged and really understands how to apply learned concepts into actual clinical examples, it becomes more real, and you learn better, and your retention is more. Um, it's a tricky problem. Yeah. I mean, for second year developmental milestones, and I'm going to thank folks who do this, so we just volunteer their children to come to meet the second year students. And I'm always amazed when people complain that they had to, like, actually. And it, and it, yeah. <laughs> it may just take some time for people to understand that acceptability. Um, and effectiveness are completely different markers, and that what we care about is effectiveness because we have to care about that because patients' lives are on the line. Um, and so at some point, hopefully, we'll figure out how to move past the likability factor. I have a lot of thoughts about the flipped classroom, which I'm going to hold right now because I, it, it's a personal pet peeve of mine, but that's okay. Um, I'm actually more curious. Most of us don't do procedures in our in our careers. Mm -hmm. um, there are a few of you in critical care or procedural medicine who do. So I, I really agree with you that a lot of what we do is on communication, whether or not it's verbal or written. And I'm wondering if there are good strategies, because we're overwhelmed. I'm talking to my colleague here about how late we are writing notes every single night. We're overwhelmed with the documentation, mm -hmm. with the burdens of, I just got my MOC this week, thank goodness, you know, trying to do all that stuff. I feel like I need to teach my learners time management, documentation, 
you know, things that are not directly related to the care of patients, but unless I do efficiently, I can't sit and listen to a patient talk about their concerns and have good communication skills. So I'm wondering if there's good educational strategies for teaching that. Well, I think the first educational strategy um, is that, you know, and again, I know that there are so many different financial pressures on every different department, but medical schools and academic medical centers need to value educators and provide them with protected time. Because if we don't give people protected time to teach, we aren't going to be able to incorporate those opportunities within the day of, um, you know, an average day here. I mean, I think all of us wear so many hats and trying to figure out um, when you're prioritizing, like getting your notes done and actually seeing your family and having a family dinner versus teaching a medical student how to do proper documentation, we know what's going to win out. We're all human. We all have many different competing priorities. And I think until... Um, you know, medical education, if we do not dedicate the time and the resources and the protected time and provide scholarly, um, you know, support for it, I mean, it, medical education is truly a scholarly discipline, and it is as important as basic science research or clinical trials work. Um, and until we actually look at it that way and provide people with the support and the resources they need to do a good job, we will continue to struggle just along those lines um, about there's just the, the thousand things that we need to educate our, our trainees about with no time to do so. Thank you very much for drawing attention to medical education for the field for my uh, career. I don't like to be negative, but systems are huge impacts on us. And mm -hmm. when I think about uh, students receiving flipped classroom, I'm thinking about how many years they spent in elementary school, junior high, and high school trying to get really good grades so that they could go to medical school where they then crammed facts and knowledge in. And uh, to change, we have to be very overt about the fact that we're trying to change the system. Mm -hmm. And secondly, it isn't just that we need to have time for medical education in our uh, patient environments. We need time for patients. Yep. <laughs> and when your decision is to have dinner with your family or document or spend a little more time with a family understanding what it is that they need, uh, it's really tough. Yeah. So we're sort of uh, enabling our system to continue to abuse the physicians. I won't go on too much. This <laughs> documentation and frustrating the physician when they really wanted primary care, patient care. Yeah. And, and I don't know if you guys have the EMR, but, I mean, we have found that the EMR is just killing us. It's actually, I think, one of the major contributors to physician burnout, um, just because now you can document at home. And you can see more patients and then document at home. So that's really 